Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Don't piss off God. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to tonight's episode of Conspiranormal with your hosts, Adam Sane, Luke Reed, and special guests. Not because I'm really a special guest, but because I'm only here every now and then. <laughs> Chris McAlvin. Aw, you are special. Chris, Chris, we're so glad to have you, man. It's been, it's been a little while. Yeah, I know, I know. Stupid job. It's been way too long. It's been so long, Chris. <laughs> Your fans have been, you know, we have more than 15 listeners. We've yeah, we have more 20, than 15 listeners. And at least, 20, at least five of them come in to look to, did, for did you, Did you see man. that picture of the girl with her top off that said Chris across the <laughs> <laughs> No, I must, have, I must have missed that one, Luke. She was all disappointed we had do to I tell need, her hold you, on. Weren't, you weren't here. Hold on, do I need, do I, to, in order to meet this girl, do I need like dark magic and a laminating machine first? You because might. That, that's you a good know. possibility. Make, only make sure you uh, heat it and do three layers instead of one. She's probably Norwegian oh or Finnish oh or something. So. Is, she, is she a golden girl? Because I'm tired of getting robbed by them. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Chris got robbed by an old lady the other night. Uh, oh, God, yeah. Well, here we are. Yeah. And uh, it's April 15th as we're recording this, and something happened in Boston today, which was rather um, interesting. Two pipe bombs were set off at the end of the Boston Marathon at the finish line. And well, I'm saying pipe bombs, but nobody really knows what they were. They probably were pipe bombs. They probably yeah, they had to have been with the minimal damage that they did. Yeah. And there was another one that was defused and they said that there was a fire at the John F. Kennedy uh library and center. Uh but they're now saying on the news that that was not associated with the other two bombs. So I find that kind of a strange coincidence. Right, yeah. Uh, it's, it's really too early 
for me to sit here and say that like there's something odd with this. I think I watched uh, something Alex Jones put on there. He's you know as he usually does jump the gun, but uh, I just a couple you know, thing. One thing that is odd is that once again it's in the middle. There was a drill that was done earlier in the day for something very much like this uh, that happened. Um, apparently, as reports have come in, there was a guy that was running the marathon from uh, Mobile, Alabama that said at the, at, the, uh, at the starting line, not the finishing line, there was uh, bomb sniffing dogs out. And he asked the guys, uh, the policemen with bomb sniffing dogs, what was going on. And he said it's just normal um, activities, normal, what is it? Uh, procedures. Procedures, yeah. So, I don't know exactly what to think about that, but if there were drills that were going on, uh, you know, much like the 7-7 bombing in London, 9-11 uh, is another one where there were drills that were happening during the day that all of a sudden something happened. It seems like all of a sudden, like, the drill has gone live. Um, have you... Luke, you haven't watched any of the coverage. No. Have you watched any of the coverage? Um, I was watching some of it while I was eating my dinner. Yeah, um, it's hard to pay attention to sometimes when you're doing that. So Yeah, I don't know. Like, they, the, the media is immediately just, you know, coming out and saying, you know, this is an act of terrorism, which, I mean, regardless they of... they always do. Regardless of who did it, it, it really is. But I, I think when you, when you say the word terrorism now, everyone automatically thinks, you know, Islamic radicals, um... Things of, things of that nature. I, I don't know. I think it's really, really way too early. And with the fact that it was not a complex uh, bomb at all, yeah. um, obviously it did, a, it did a minimal amount of damage. I'm not detracting the fact that you know at least two people thus far have lost their lives. Right. You know, they're, and they're probably more because they took a lot of people out in critical condition. Right. Their mm-hmm. their last last I last news report I watched. Uh, 128 people have been reported injured. However, there are still many more coming in. Uh, so this is this is a very it's, it's it's very it's it's not a small thing, but it's not it's not in the complexity um, that I would almost expect at this point from a group like Al Qaeda. Yeah, even if there were like IEDs in the place of something like this bomb that they're describing. I think it would do much more a lot damage. more damage. It would yeah. kill at least like 10, 15 people on uh, with both bombs. But um, but but going back to what you were talking about with the drills and everything, um, to me, and again, I'm not obviously I'm not an intelligence agent. You know, I don't have any credibility in that department. But to me, that almost feels like it would be more they uh, they had the information. You know, they 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 knew something. They knew, but they couldn't find it. They couldn't pinpoint it. However, I do find it odd that, that I did read one report uh, that there was a man transporting backpacks, packages, back and forth to the spot where these bombs exploded. Okay, I haven't, heard this. I haven't yes. heard this. Yes, I, I was reading That's a report new. earlier that they, they, there was a man spot, spotted transporting packages to the point mm-hmm. where these bombs went off. And, I mean... Do you remember what... Uh site that was on? No, no. I, I, I think it was CNN that reported that. Actually. Well, another odd thing was that they said that there was a suspect... I'd heard that there was a suspect in custody. Uh, someone we know. I was talking on the phone. I hadn't been able to see anything on TV yet or from earlier today. And then they, when I got home, they said there was no suspect in custody. And that was a 
that was a uh, miscommunication. Miscommunication, I guess. And then two, um, the drill. If there was a drill, I'd be curious to see exactly what was it. What was it for? Right. Uh, There was a there was someone asking uh, one of the police, someone in the police department, about uh, there being a drill earlier in the day. Uh, So I'll be curious to see where this goes. Uh, I just at this moment I don't want to jump to any conclusions. Right. But they are pushing a, they are and we need to go to our guest here pretty soon, but they are pushing a meme right now of saying it's either a domestic terrorist or it's Al Qaeda. Uh, and <clears throat> the domestic terrorist thing is coming first. So my prediction, and by the time this is probably posted we'll, we'll probably know something, uh, my prediction is is that they're going to it's going to be a domestic terrorist. Yeah, or it's going to be blamed on a domestic. Well, device. I, I honestly just again from the from the lack of complexity of the device and you know what happened, I, I feel like it would be more towards the domestic terrorists. Yeah, um. that uh, and I agree with that. It's, it, that it seems like it probably would be. So we'll see what happens. Also, April fifteenth, strangely, strangely enough, was Patriots Day, and just to make the point that at the end of this month or at the end of this week, rather, on April 19th, it is the 20th anniversary of Waco. It is also the the 18th anniversary of Oklahoma City. And also, not forget, the 20th is the anniversary of Columbine. Of Columbine, yep. So, very interesting week. All right, well, we need to go to the guest. Uh, Guest tonight is Scotty Roberts, and uh, once we will be right back to discuss some more of this on Conspiranormal. Okay, we're back on Conspiranormal with Luke and Chris in the house. And uh, we have on the line Scott Allen Roberts, otherwise known as Scotty. For the second time. And for the second time, yeah, he's a return guest. And uh, he has a new book out called The Secret History of the Reptilians. And uh, everybody, welcome to the show, uh, Scotty Roberts. Welcome. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me back. Hey, thanks for coming back. Uh... Well, Scotty, I mean, you know, I just got finished with your book uh, this morning, in fact, and uh, it's a really great book. There's a lot in it, just as the Nephilim book. You know, there's just a lot to both books. And uh, I just kind of want to jump in and uh, start talking about, you know, uh, what is your conception of this whole, like, reptilian mythos that's going around? Sure. Uh, you know, the first thing that I notice when you start talking about the reptilians is, is uh, it's it's this extraterrestrial, almost science fictiony sounding type of topic out there. It's uh, it's much more pointed than just saying I think that we may have had ancient visitors, that there may have been paleo contact of some kind with humans, uh, that there is non-human entities that may have intermingled with uh, with human beings. This is one that says uh, the reptilians are actually a race from another star system. They came here for the purpose of colonizing, the purpose of subjugating once they got here, because they saw that the human race was an undeveloped hominid race, and that they bred them up for the purpose of creating slave labor. This is is the, the mythos part of this. This is the story that seems to be prevalent out there when you start talking about reptilians, and that there is some kind of 
almost conspiratorial type of race that lives behind the scenes, operates on this planet since the very beginnings of mankind looking up into the sun and, and having cogent thought, and uh, that they were here for the reason of, of, of uh, uh, really creating a, a subjugated race and that that's what their intent still is, and that they've been operating behind the scenes of humanity all through the, the, the millennia past, uh, all the way up into the present, and uh, uh, even behind the things like the Illuminati, some people say. And, it, and it's, you know, I say it that way because we don't even know that the Illuminati really exists, even though we have conspiracy, conspiracy theories about it. <coughs> but the reptilian conspiratorists will tell you the Illuminati's nothing compared to the reptilian race. And if you start going online and doing uh, research, I actually did this in the book, I, I said, uh, uh, I just did a Google search, and I got one point, I think it was six million something hits, uh, or, or uh, Google says uh, um, uh, 1.6 million uh, replies that can come back, that you can go look up all those pages on reptilian aliens. And when I started looking through the top ten that come up on Google, you end up with the same basic story retold over and over and over again, and then, you know, I randomly started going out there into the higher numbers and trying to find what's out there. And every now and then you would run across a site that gives you something a little different. But most everybody, at least in the top sites, were people repeating the same exact story. But none of them sourcing any source points. Uh, none of them giving you any reliable information that says, okay, I get your story, where are you drawing your information? And uh, a lot of it you can find comes from Zechariah Sitchin, David Icke, and some of the big yeah. components out there. But they that's, don't Luke's, that's Luke's favorite, oh, David Icke. Right. He loves him. Yeah. Oh, David Icke, he's, he's, he's a maniac, man. I loved and, all four uh, hours of I, his that, documentary. I mean, that in a good way. He's a good maniac. But uh, <laughs> um, uh, all of that stuff is out there. Nobody can tell you where they get their information other than from people. And many times they don't cite Zechariah Sitchin. They just say, like Zechariah Sitchin said, that's about all they'll tell you. Yeah. But uh, uh, they couldn't sit and have a cogent conversation on where they believe the reptilians entered into interaction or intercourse even with humanity. You try to get a scientific answer, a factual answer from anybody, you're not going to get it. Now, I'm, I'm, let me qualify something I just said, too. I'm not one of those scientists, scientific guys who says... Uh, you know, extraordinary claims must have extraordinary evidences. I believe that to, to an extent. But I also believe that there are veils we can't pierce. I also believe that there's information we just don't have available to us. That doesn't mean it is non-existent. That doesn't mean uh, uh, that, that it's all false or all made up. It just means we don't have the information available and readily at our fingertips. Sure. So to say that Sitchin, Ike, they're on to something? Yeah, yeah, probably. They're probably on to something. But there's absolutely no way to prove it. I, I think it was, I, I don't know if it was the foreword or the introduction of the book or the first chapter. I actually said, uh, I, I said, proving the existence of extraterrestrial alien race of reptilians that have come here to subjugate this planet is about as easy as proving the existence of God. And uh, it, that's really what it comes down to. And uh, by the way, I just mentioned the forward. It just made me think. I want. I want to give a uh, um, homage to. Uh, um, homage is not the word. Uh, uh, honor Philip Coppins, uh, who yeah. uh, um, wrote this uh, this uh, 
forward for my book back last uh, late last summer, early fall, and uh, then of course since has passed away. So, um, uh, just uh, thank you posthumously again to uh, Philip Coppins. Yeah, that was a tragedy that he uh, he passed away so so young. If any, it you c- certainly up. is. I don't know if you guys are not familiar with him, but he was uh, someone that was on Ancient Aliens a lot, and he talked about like, the, the Ancient Aliens theory and about, uh, uh, I think his last book was on about the lost civilization. Uh, his uh, his two last books, he had The Ancient Alien Question, yeah. and then he had uh, um, The Lost Civilizations. It wasn't, was it Enigma? I can't remember if it was The Lost Civilization Enigma or not, uh, but uh, he wrote that book. Uh, Philip Coppins, while he was well-known in ancient alien circles and for his conspiratorial uh, writings, the ancient alien type of stuff, he was also a prolific writer in other areas. He he wrote uh, some books on the Kennedy assassination. Um, he oh, also really? was in the works with his wife, Kathleen McGowan, who was a best-selling author uh, herself, uh, on, on Anne Boleyn. And so uh, they were also studying Senenmut and Hatshepsut, in uh, 18th Dynasty Egypt, so there were some uh, lots of other things he was into. It wasn't just a, a one-trick pony in the ancient alien circle. And I believe he wrote uh, one of the last things that he wrote was the uh, the forward to your book. That's that's correct. Um, he was working on other things, but the last really published work, I guess you could say, is is uh, um, until his wife is. I think his wife has completed the work that they were working on and she's going to be promoting that book but uh, the forward he wrote for my book was one of the last things he wrote in public for, for the public uh, until uh, his wife has completed this book now so um, uh, I feel very honored by that uh, to ask you uh, Scotty uh, we're talking about the uh, reptilians um, when you mentioned that uh, Sitchin and Ike that they're on to something what is it that they're on to well, um, when I say I think they may be on to something, I, I I like to preface a lot of this stuff where we have no proof and we have no evidence of it. All we have are people who talk about it, people who theorize about it. It's like even the ancient alien theory itself. We have evidences, but we can't produce the definitive evidence that shows that it is factual. That's where I say they're on to something. I believe they're on to something that is that is real, that, has, that there's something tangible to it, but we have not either stumbled upon or researched to the point where we've discovered what that definitive evidence might be. We have all kinds of little things, side discoveries going on, if you will, or evidences found that we can attribute to things, but we don't know for sure. It just looks like this. It looks like that. Uh, for instance, the, uh, the whole uh, RH negative factor in blood has been attributed by those who are supporters of the reptilian alien uh, theory that that is a reptilian bloodline that is in us um, and it's it's, uh, it's the RH negative blood was discovered stumbled upon uh, by scientists in the uh, in the mid 1950s and they just simply came out and said there's no other source point for the RH negative blood factor on the planet now I don't think they were out there going so that means it came from aliens I don't think they were saying that uh, but I think that they were just making a, it was a medical, medical discovery uh, that, that this is unique in humans. And there's certain uh, um, 
characteristics or attributes of having that kind of blood. You know, your temp body temperature can be a little cooler, um, uh, more sensitive to light, things like this. And people started comparing that to, and they said, aha, see, this is where we are linked to the reptilians having interbred with us somehow. And that's where I would say interesting theory. That's an evidence of something, but is it an evidence of that? We don't know for sure because there's no way to really test it. So um, there are lots of theories that you can say if it if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck and acts like a duck, it's a duck. But uh, uh, when it comes to trying to substantiate scientific theory uh, or a theory of even ancient aliens, you can say, I've got evidences, but I can't prove that it exists. And that's the big fly in the ointment to all of this. I think the reptilian theory is even harder to, to, to prove than even the, the, the theory that, that we may have been visited by ancient, by ancient uh, non-human entities, uh, ancient extraterrestrials. Um, I think there was such a thing as paleocontact, and the evidences seem to point to that, but they do not substantiate that. And it's still, so it's all theory. And I get into debates with uh, scientific types or skeptical types. And uh, I was just uh, on Twitter, and you know how it is on Twitter. you got 140 characters to say something. I was in a debate that went <laughs> dozens, if not if not. Uh, 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 under a hundred, I don't know, maybe more than a hundred uh, posts back and forth on this very topic of uh, ancient aliens and being able to prove whether it exists or not. And it was a very friendly debate. It was a good debate, kind of debate I like on this stuff, where nobody's calling somebody an idiot or back and forth or things like that. But we're, we were trying to get to the core of it. And uh, uh, in all of this, I said, I've really got to concede to your point that there is no definitive evidence that says we, we were visited by ancient aliens. I said, but you have to concede to my point that there is enough circumstantial types of, maybe even anecdotal evidence, that looks like it could be so, and therefore it is a field that deserves research. And, uh, uh, and you know, this guy maintains it. Well, you know, we should, is that where we should be putting our efforts? I said, you know, there are people who are interested in it, they don't want to study something else. Let them study it and let academia accept them. And this is where I, I, I really come wall to wall with, this, with the skeptical community, uh, the scientific skeptical community. I, I say that there are two kinds of skeptics. There's a big S skeptic and there's a little S skeptic. And I think uh, big S skeptic are the, pardon me for this, the buffoons like James Randi, um, uh, Michael Shermer, uh, all of these guys, uh, uh, even to a certain extent, scientists like Dr. Richard Dawkins, uh, respect I mean, him in his, in his biological, uh, evolutionary bio biological research, but when it comes to being a skeptic, he's just as much a nimrod as anybody else who's got a point of view. Well, they're really naysayers is what they are. They're naysayers, and that's yeah. the big S skeptic. The skeptic will say this. You, you pretty much say something, and they go, no, it isn't. No, it doesn't. <laughs> that uh, uh, prove it. And, you know, that's a big-ass skeptic, which I call pretty much cynical skeptics, but they're big-ass skeptics. Uh, the small-ass skeptic is like you, like me, like like uh, a lot of the people I know. Believe it or not, Giorgio Tsoukalos, I believe, is a small-ass skeptic. He is skeptical of the things that he looks up. Um, they're presented one way on a show, which is edited and it's produced and so on, yeah. and he believes that there was alien contact, but he's much broader than that. Uh, all of these people are small-ass skeptics, which is a skeptic that says, 
I believe that that looks like it could be so, and there's no damn proof for it, but I want to find the proof. I want to find out if I'm right. I want to find out if this theory means something. Uh, show me more. Teach me more. Let me dig some more. They don't just deny. I find big-ass skeptics to be denialists uh, based on solely their research and their point of view. Uh, so that's you run headlong into all of this out there. The skeptical community is one that is just as religious as the religious community, um, even more so. And I think academics are more religious than 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 faithers are, because uh, well, for instance, take the evolutionary ascendancy of man, the theory of evolution. I am not a creationist. But I do not believe for a minute that the theory of evolution has ever been proven. That's why it's still called the theory of evolution. Um, they might be right. They might be onto something. But all they have are specific stages, or what they call stages of evolution. And yet none of them are connected. There's no DNA linkage between any of them. There's only extrapolated information from stage to stage to stage to say, we think that this looks like the ascendancy of mankind, and we, we need to keep filling in the gaps with more stages, when how do you know what they have just aren't simply different species along the way? Uh, we don't know this for sure. Um, and so the theory of evolution is still a theory of evolution. It's like a quote from 1905, a guy named uh, Poncier. He said, uh, um, the theory of evolution is, or science is like a pile of rocks. He says, a pile of rocks can build a house, but until you've built the house, it's just a pile of rocks. And that's exactly what the theory of evolution is. It's a pile of rocks. It does not make a house yet. Hey, but, Scotty, that's not a reptilian we're hearing behind you, is it? Oh, I'm sorry you're hearing that. That is uh, one of my small children. Uh, <laughs> either worshipping from afar. Yeah, I have my headset on, so I only hear little bits and pieces. They're either worshipping me or they're crying because they can't come downstairs or something. I don't know what it is. <laughs> So sorry about that. Uh, no, I, I do no problems in my, in my home. It, you know, there's nothing better than being on a business call and saying to somebody, well, yes, see, I would, uh, uh, I appreciate you approaching me for investment in our company, and here's why it went, bah, bah, in the background. <laughs> oh, my God. So, uh, here, let me turn down that television. No, I just tell people I office at home, so uh, right. you're going to have to bear with my children. <laughs> so sorry about that. No problem. Let me ask you, Scotty, too. Uh, we we kind of touched on this the last time you were on here. Uh, we talked a little bit about the serpent seed theory, about the, uh, uh, you know, can you kind of go into that a little bit? Because I think you you use that kind of, I think, as a, as a root to some of the other theories that you talk about and the other mythologies that you talk about in your book. It, it's definitely a springboard, uh, the serpent seed theory. Now, there is a serpent seed doctrine that is considered heretical by the church and all of that. And I, this isn't strictly that same doctrine, although it overlaps. Um, and I'm not worried whether the church thinks it's, uh, it's I'm a heretic or not. That's not my concern. But uh, the serpent seed doctrine basically says this, and you've got to go back into the Bible to get there. Um, and I believe... So much of what you find in biblical passages really build the foundations for much broader theories that are out there. The whole theory, the whole talk of the Nephilim in the first book, and what we talked about last year. And I went to the Bible for that because that's the source point of the word Nephilim. It's a Hebrew word in the book of Genesis and other Hebrew books. Um, 
as far as the reptilian theory, one factor behind this factors in the serpent seed doctrine or the serpent seed theory. And that is that there is, biblically speaking, from the book of Genesis, the Garden of Eden and so on, there is a serpent seed that has been planted in human, and there's the dual bloodline in humanity. A human bloodline and a bloodline that is that is uh, infused with the serpent blood. And the serpent blood in there isn't meaning, oh, a snake had sex with my wife. You know, something like that. It's the serpent in the garden is where this comes from. And as I've uh, established in both books, I recapped it in the second book, is that the serpent in the garden has been, at least religiously for centuries, millennia, has been uh, uh, aligned with Satan, with Lucifer, with the devil. Where, in fact, in the Genesis account of the Garden of Eden, those terms and names are never used. Uh, the serpent in there is called Nakosh. And Nakosh is referred to as the bright shining one, the bringer of knowledge, the illuminator. And he is the one that I believe the whole Garden of Eden scenario is not one of eating forbidden fruit. Literally, it is an encoded message. You can look at the Garden of Eden story and you can by faith say, I believe God created man and woman, Adam and Eve, and put them in the garden and that they, it happened exactly like the biblical account says. Or you can look at that story and say, this looks an awful lot like lots of other cultural mythologies of first families and creation. Uh, it's got all the earmarks of that religious mythology to it. And you can also look at it and say that this is a story that's written to be an encoded message for something. It's an encoded message of race interrupted, because I believe what you see in the Garden of Eden stories, the serpent character, Nakosh, tempts Eve, which is the same word that's used in the Hebrew, ancient Hebrew for seduce, uh, but he seduced Eve, that uh, he had sex with Eve, and Eve conceived a son, and she brought this new thing in to Adam, whether it was new or not, if they were the first people or not, she brings it to Adam, has sex with him, and she bears a second son, or conceives a second son, and she has twins conceived, which goes along with many other ancient mythologies of first families. There's always a trickster character who comes in and either impregnates the woman of the first couple or the daughter of the first couple, and she has twins or triplets or quintuplets or whichever. And so this coincides with a lot of other mythology, religious mythology. And so Eve bears twin sons. One of them is the son of Eve and Nakosh, and the other is the son of Eve and Adam. Now, if it was two individuals that this story actually boils back down to, or whether it is a race we're talking about, we're talking about it being a story of infiltration in the human bloodline, or interruption in the human bloodline. And so the whole Garden of Eden story is a story of race interrupted. It's a story of sexual behavior, a story of sexual knowledge being gained. And this was the forbidden knowledge that was brought to them. And uh, it's borne out by the things that are actually said in the passage afterwards. God comes down and utters the first prophecy of the coming Messiah right there in the Garden of Eden. It's obscure, but uh, you, you look to rabbinic scholars and Christian scholars alike, they're going to all tell you the same thing. This is the first utterance of the prophecy of a coming Messiah, where God says to the serpent, 
He says, and you will bite his heel and he shall return and crush your head. That's a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And uh, the Messiah was also known as the kinsman redeemer in the Jewish tongue, in the Jewish sensibility. And you got to think of that, that, the kinsman redeemer, the Messiah simply meant the Savior who would be one of us, the one who would come to redeem us. That was one of us. So... The kinsman redeemer is, is prophesied for the first time in Eden, and then God looks at all of them, the man, the woman, and the snake, the snake character, and he says to them, and there will be continual enmity or conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. In other words, these two bloodlines will be at constant conflict with each other, at least on a base natural level. And so... All you've got through the Old Testament now, through the genealogies that are laid out afterwards, uh, why did they lay out all these boring genealogies? You know, in the book of Chronicles, you've got, you've got, or not, yeah, yeah, you've got, what, uh, nine to thirteen chapters of, on the Ezra begot Mahishahel, and Mahishahel lay with <laughs> women and had Mahershalal hashbaz, <laughs> lay with, you know, and so on. And, and Jimmy, and... Uh, <laughs> oh. Dad, why did you name me such an odd name? Uh, but uh, so the, the whole purpose of the genealogies was to record through the firstborn son of every line, the line of the Jews or the Hebrews at that time, l laying out the line of the coming Messiah, the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer had to be shown to have a bloodline that was traceable back to Adam because he was the kinsman redeemer, the one of us redeemer. Now, here's the interesting point. When that biblical line of genealogies, and, the, and it's continually repeated over and over and over and over and over again, that the kinsman redeemer had to be one of us. He had to be of pure human blood. He had to be of the line of Adam. It's obviating the opposite. If I keep telling you, hey, guys, you got to come over here where it's white. you got to come to the white, the white over here, the white. I'm obviating that. There's obviously something else other than the white over here that you need to come from or not yeah. go to. And uh, so I, I take some some steps of really offending religious sensibilities, and I don't mean to do that. Believe what you need to believe by faith, but it is my core belief that the story of the kinsman redeemer and the Messiah as laid out in the Old Testament is the story piggybacking the story of race interrupted. It's the story of piggybacking a race that is not of pure human blood. The serpent seed doctrine, if you will. And remember, Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain murders Abel. So chicken scratched through Abel, you got three people left on the earth. You got Cain and his mom and dad, Adam and Eve. Well, it's interesting that uh, um, you can follow the line of Cain... He, he produced the Kenites. Uh, he went, it says he went from Eden, was driven out of Eden by God, and he went east to the land of Nod, and there he lay with his wife and had a son. Oh, God, he had a wife. We don't know where she came from. Right. That's a whole other topic. That <laughs> yeah. says he builds a city and names it after his son, and his son's name was Enoch, not the Enoch, not the famous Enoch, but the Book of Enoch. That's nine generations later. This is the early Enoch. And uh, um, he and in by way of linguistics, Enoch, trust me on this. It's a linguistic quagmire. But you start going through it, you know the 
the U, the E converts to a U, and the N converts to an R, and it's all the ancient linguistics. Enoch is the same word as Uruk. So, um, uh, Cain founded the city of Uruk. Uruk is the same word as Iraq. Uh, this is ancient Iraq. And, uh, so this is the territory he's in, but Cain is... I want you to see something. When you go through all these genealogies, and you get all the way up to Noah, and they trace Noah back to Adam, you get all the way up to King David, thousands of years later, and they trace him all the way back to Noah, then all the way back to Adam. They always trace through not Cain, the firstborn. They break that tradition from the very beginning. Why? Because Cain was not of pure human blood. They traced the human bloodline all the way back to Adam through Seth, the thirdborn son, the son who Eve said, God has given me a man-child to replace my son Abel. And Seth is of Adam and Eve, and they traced the line through Seth, but never through Cain, even though Cain's still alive. Was it just because he murdered his brother that he was no longer the firstborn? No, it was that he was not of pure human blood. So that he was actually... And I think we talked about this last year. He was the first of the Nephilim. Uh, he was one that was born of of Nakash and Eve. He was conceived of them. That's and Chris's born. here. That's Chris's favorite subject is uh, Nephilim. He loves it. <laughs> it's, it's a great topic, and I, I'm starting to wonder too, even about some of the things I wrote about. This is ever progressing, ever evolving. Um, if you look at the passage, it's very interesting. I'm just going to hit on this for a second. I may have to write a follow up to this someday. But uh, I, I have always put forward and believed, and I put it forward in the book on the Nephilim, that the Nephilim were the offspring of the sons of God, the Watchers, the Benehi Elohim, and mating with human women. But it's interesting in the linguistics. It actually says, and the sons of God, the Benehi Elohim, inter, uh, uh, intercoursed literally with human women, the daughters of Adam, and they bequeathed offspring. And then it says, and the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. There's almost an implication. I've got to dig into the Hebrew on this. There's an implication that the Nephilim are something completely different from the offspring of the sons of God. They were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of... And it actually says, they were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men and had children by them. It almost sounds to me like there's something else going on there, and I got to look into that. But uh, um, there's there's a lot of there's some theories, and that's kind of a that's kind of a contentious issue, and kind of the uh, like uh, the, the alternative Christian camp that talks about Nephilim. Some believe that there was a second incursion, and then you'll hear all kinds of other kinds of ideas. The the whole about, pagan idea about it being uh, references to the celestial body in the zodiac. Uh, no, not with the Christian stuff. This is more like how that exactly happened with that second, how after the flood they were around. Right. So there's there's some interesting ideas to say that there was a second incursion. The flood was really, uh, the whole Nephilim story is the preamble to the flood. And uh, uh, if God supposedly brought the flood to wipe them out, it was ineffective. Because it says they were on the earth in those days and also and afterward. There, yeah. So the question is, was he there to wipe out the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men, which is different from the Nephilim? Or was he there to wipe out the Nephilim, which were the offspring, but it was ineffectual? We don't know. Somebody knows. Yeah. 
that uh, how this all ties into the reptilians and this whole we were talking about the serpent seed doctrine is that this is where the serpent seed doctrine comes in the fact that uh, uh, you can go all the way back to Nakosh or the serpent in the garden and say this is where this comes from that he supposedly impregnated the first woman and she bore children some of whom were uh, uh, the ch- one of whom was the, the child of Nakosh, the other of whom was the child of Adam. And uh, um, they had to have a third son that re- re-sparked that, that uh, uh, human bloodline. And this is where that serpent seed doctrine comes from, that the seed of the serpent continued on through Cain and the Kenites. And uh, then on through, uh, the Kenites were said to be part of, uh, trying to remember some of this off the top of my head, um, that they, they were said to have settled in that region and that uh, they were part of some of the people uh, 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 or some of the tribes that intermingled with the tribe of it's said that the tribe of Dan broke off from Moses after the exodus and they went north of Israel and they settled and intermingled with the tribes there who were the remnant of the Anunnaki of the Sumerians and they settled with them intermingled with them and they moved west, and they went into Europe, the Slavic countries, and then into Europe. Uh, they were really the founders of most of the royal houses of Europe. They went all the way up into the British Isles. They were the founding of the of the uh, the royal house of uh, uh, of uh, uh, Wales and uh, on Scotland. The Picts, and and this is what's interesting about all of that. And you look at the the Irish uh, legends of the Tuatha Dé Danann who I talked about uh, with the Nephilim. It's, uh, they, they were one of the other stories out there of the, of the bright, shining gods who came down from the heavens and intermingled with the uh, ancient Irish. And uh, they were driven away with the wars and into the hollow hills and eventually became known as the Elven Folk. Now, the interesting thing about the Tuatha de Danann is that uh, the Danann in there refers to the goddess Danu, but it is also linked to the Anu, the Anunnaki, the, the Tuatha de Danu or the Tuatha de Anu, um, and that there are linkages to the, the remnants of the tribes of the Anunnaki or the bloodlines of the Anunnaki. And, uh, and that's very interesting. And that uh, these elven folk are, are, are based on the same word for God, El, in the Hebrew. El is the name for God. Elven folk is a derivation of that. Uh, Elohim. El Shaddai, El Elyon, are names of God that came from El in the Canaanite culture, which came from, 2,000 years earlier, Elil, the chief god of the Anunnaki. And so uh, you start looking at all of these things, and man, I can go off on that for a long time, but that's something that really opened my eyes to a lot of what is being written, what we found written in our, our treasured Old Testament and New Testament, our Bible, is we find that the stories that Moses wrote, I believe, originally originally wrote in those first five books of the Bible, and the stories of the creation, the stories of the flood, that he drew all this information from other religions and other sources and put his own spin on them, if you will, which is exactly what Muhammad did, exactly what other religion builders did. They rely on the old, and they pull it up, and they, and they adapt it to fit their stories. Um, and if I go into that for just a second, if you go back to the ancient culture of Sumeria, of Sumer, uh, which was said, once said to have been believed to be the oldest civilization on the planet, 
at least the oldest uh, uh, writing that we have goes to the cuneiform tablets uh, that, that 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 go to uh, Sumer Akkad, that area, the Akkadian tablets and the Sumerian tablets, and this is where we find the stories of the Anunnaki, the pantheon of gods of the ancient Sumerians, and. Uh, um, when Zachariah Sitchin says that they're reptilians, it never says in the cuneiform tablets that they're yeah. reptilians. He, he, and they he fly in rockets. Other yeah. information. But, uh, yeah, and flying craft and so on. All we get, we, we find that, uh, I, you know, I got this book. It's uh, the, the Ancient Stories or Tales or something in Mesopotamia. It's right from the old cuneiform tablets. And it's kind of like, you know, you see all the time that it says, here's somebody's new book on a re- reinterpretation in modern English of uh, the Hebrew text from the Old Testament, or whatever. This is exactly what somebody had done uh, about 15, 20 years ago. This book was written, and it was a newer interpretation from the cuneiform. Sure. And so reading these stories, and it talks about Elil, the chief god of the Anunnaki, comes to Enki, one of the other gods. Enki, also known as Ea, so I always refer to him as Enki Ea, because it's important to know both the names here. And he says, we're tired of doing our own work, uh, digging our trenches and, and tilling our land and mining our resources. Let us create, therefore, primeval man that he may do our work for us. And so Enki gets together with one of the goddesses, and they do their thing, and they create primeval man. Well, eventually you have the king of the humans at that time, uh, Atrahasis. And you can read in the, the tale of Atrahasis from these cuneiform tales. And by the way, guys... If you want to get a really good uh, date night, if you will, with your girlfriend or your wife, uh, uh, pull out the cuneiform, the new translations of the ancient Sumerian cuneiform. Man, does that stuff read like like uh, uh, Lord of the Rings on crack? But it also sounds very biblical. You have Atrahasis, the enslaved humans, the king of the humans. He's the king of the city of Erdu, which is uh, their patron god is Enki, Ea, who created primeval man. And he prays to Enki. He's got his arms spread, and he says, he says, Oh, my lord Enki, hear the word of your servant and bend your ear to my cry and my plea. It sounds so much like, like the Bible. And Enki, it says, And Enki heard the word of his servant and bent his ear and said, uh, um, and answered his prayers. And Atrahasis was was uh, praying because we are enslaved and, and we're under this yoke of bondage. Can you release us and free us? And so Anki and his, and his mighty men of valor come down, teach the humans how to rebel against, uh, against Elil, the chief god. And uh, the, the humans rebel. They win their freedom. And, God, I just got a flash of Braveheart. <laughs> the warrior poets. And they won their freedom. And he gets back. Well, anyway, this is what happened with, with, with Enki Ea. He comes down and he helps them win their freedom. But what happens to him? Elil, pissed off, uh, he takes Enki and all of his followers, condemns them to the subterranean caverns of the earth to dwell forever as punishment. Scotty, now, is that how they translate it? Do they translate it as pissed off and from the original okay, Yeah, form? yeah. I, I think that's a modern idiom. <laughs> I mean, that's how I would translate it. So. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> But uh, um, also as part of this story, Anki lived in the great uh, subterranean, the Abzu, the subterranean oceans, and he would come to the surface around the city of Eridu, and he would uh, the, the the 
backwater marshes of the Euphrates surrounded Eridu, and he would ride in his boat with his boatsmen, and he loved this area. It was beautiful, but it was also it was called the Serpent's Marsh because it was obviously filled with serpents. It still is today when you go to those regions, and uh, the Serpent's Marsh became known as as Iaz Marsh or Enki Iaz Marsh, and it was also known as Iaz Den or Iaden. Uh, now, go forward 1,500 years, 2,000 years in time from the Sumerian civilization to the Canaanite culture and the beginning of the Hebrew culture. Um, El Il, the chief god of the Sumerians, becomes El of the Canaanites and of the Hebrews, El, and which becomes Elohim, El Shaddai, El Elyon. Um, Enki, Ia, known as Ia in the Akkadian culture, becomes Yahweh of the Canaanites and of the Hebrews. Yahweh is the word... Is, is the word Jehovah. And so these words have their base roots in the names of the gods of the Sumerian culture. And then you have, remember the Sumerians, they created primeval man to do their work for them, dig their ditches, till their ground, mine their resources. What do you have in the Genesis story? You have God creates man and woman, places them in the garden to till the ground and keep it for him. Um, then you have Anki rising up out of the serpent's den or Iaden and he delivers the forbidden knowledge of the gods and how to rebel against the god and win their freedom from the from Elil and the gods. Uh, fast forward to Eden. You have not Iaden, now you have Eden, and in Eden, the serpent character. Not rising up out of the serpent's den, but the serpent, the character named Nakash, who is of serpent form comes and delivers the forbidden knowledge of how to gain freedom of sorts uh, knowledge and wisdom and now I'm not trying to re-preach some kind of new gospel uh, uh, here but when you start comparing these facts this is what you end up with and it's it's very interesting that um, Nakash by delivering this knowledge here's the response you get in the book of Genesis Look at Genesis 3, and what was God's response after Adam and Eve bit into the fruit? What does he say? It says, an Elohim, now Elohim, remember, uh, you remember from a year ago, uh, we talked about Elohim was the, one of the names for God. It was the name that was used the most in the Old Testament uh, for God, almost 3,000 times. Um, Elohim means God, El, and Him is the plural suffix in the ancient Hebrew tacked onto a word to denote plurality. So Elohim, the name for God, simply means God of many gods or God among many gods. And so Elohim could be used in the singular, it could be used in the plural. It was used in the singular when God was speaking, demonstrating a multiplicity of power and majesty, a plurality of multiplicity, uh, of uh, majesty, and it was also used when for the gods or the divine council mentioned in Psalm 82 where God says it says and Elohim singular stood in the midst of the Elohim plural and he singular said to them plural you are all Elohim gods the bright shining princes of heaven this is in Psalm 82 but now go back to Genesis 3 what happens right after the, the fruit is eaten and all of this uh, with Adam and Eve and the serpent it says and Elohim said the, the humans have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let us, and, and have become just like us, plural. 
Let us, therefore, go in and prevent them from eating also of the tree of life, lest they live forever like us. This is right in the book of Genesis, to us, the plurality. It says, it says, and God said, let us. In the Hebrew, it says, and Elohim said, the God of many gods, the God among many gods, of many gods, said, let us prevent them from becoming more like us than they've already become. And uh, he goes in, and the next thing you know, he's looking for Adam. Adam? Adam's like, I'm hiding. And God says, why are you hiding? You tell me this doesn't sound like mythology. Um, Garden of Eden story. God, it says, and God came down and strolled through the garden in the cool of the day and called out for his servant, Adam. Adam? No answer. Adam? Adam finally says, here am I, my Lord. And he says, well, where are you? He says, I'm hiding. Well, why are you hiding? Because we're naked. And God says, who told you you were naked? And right away, the, the, the blame game starts. Adam, the woman, she gave me the fruit. And the woman's like, the snake. You, gave me the, you know, and then you've got the fall of man. And then this is where God comes in and he curses the serpent. He utters the first messianic prophecy. Boom, serpent seed doctrine begins. Yeah. Uh, so this is all of that roundabout rabbit trailing to get back to that original question you asked me. Uh, that's what the serpent seed doctrine is. It's the doctrine that says the human race was tainted by the serpent. But the serpent isn't really a serpent at all. It's a character that is called the serpent. He's the serpent character. He is one of the Elohim. And you can that. Remember I just said that uh, Psalm 82 talks about God speaking to the divine council and calling them all Elohim. You are all gods. And you are the bright, shining princes of heaven. Then you go back to the Eden story with the serpent. Nakash means bright, shining one, bringer of illumination, the bringer of, of forbidden knowledge, the trickster, the bringer of chaos. And uh, by chaos, by the way, as a definition, didn't always mean something negative. It meant sometimes you can you can introduce something good that that creates chaos, and the chaos is I have just learned who I really am, and it creates chaos. So this whole serpent seed doctrine, where it becomes heresy with the church, is one that teaches like the Gnostics teach. They say the sin of the serpent was introducing knowledge to humanity because and so the first question I had when I read that passage in Genesis 3 let us therefore prevent them from doing this because they'll be just like the first question I asked was number one what did God or Elohim have against the humans having knowledge why was that a sin and the second one was if the humans could become just like them who was Elohim really? Who was God really? If he's afraid the humans could eat something and be just like him, or learn some knowledge and be just like them. And that's the big question to ask. Is, okay, God, uh, I was raised believing in you, and I went to seminary, and I was in ministry, and I was a born-again Christian, and I was a... Who are you really? You know, it's like that. It reminds me, I don't know if you remember the, the original Got Milk commercials, it had some businessman, he's on his cell phone walking across the street, and it cuts in and he's and he's yelling at some guy on the phone, he goes, oh yeah, and you're fired! <laughs> he laughs at him, then a truck comes and smack and hits him and kills him, and he 
he wakes up and he's still in his business suit and he's got clouds all around him and there's a refrigerator standing there and in front of the refrigerator a table full of chocolate chip cookies he crams his face full of chocolate chip cookies and then he's like ah, ah, I need something to drink and he goes over to the fridge and it's filled with milk cartons he pulls one out and it's, it's empty yeah it's empty he yeah. pulls out another one that's empty and he shakes they're all empty and then he looks up with chocolate all over his face he kind of looks up and goes wait a minute where am I really <laughs> And, you know, that's that's the, the whole thought behind this. So, um, what I'm introducing here, it's either something where God's really going to be pissed off at me, that's a biblical term, uh, <laughs> or God is different than we have conceived him. And who am I? I'm nobody to say, that I've got this new theory of God. I don't think this is new by any means. It's just my stumbling on it. I struggle with my faith issues over this. It's brought a lot of struggle because the God I was taught existed is not the God that seems to be coming out, even in the study of the biblical passages. So, let me ask you, let me ask you, Scotty. Uh, I guess, um, I mean, do you believe that it's just mythology, or do you believe that there that it's maybe God was some other kind of creature? I mean, what? I think it's probably a little bit of both. Um, okay. I think this is that if, if Moses, who created Judaism, founded Judaism, pulled a lot of his information from the Sumerian culture, it's one of two things. Moses was religion building for the purpose of creating national identity for the Hebrews, or Moses was, was retelling information that the Sumerians had, had either mixed up and Moses had the right story, but how could he have the right story unless God actually gave that story to him? Which oh, oh that's another point I got to get on here. But if God actually exists the way we believe, the way the Bible says, perhaps it was God who delivered that knowledge to him. Because remember, Moses grew up for forty years an Egyptian. He was pure Egyptian through and through. He's Hebrew by blood, but he was Egyptian. I am Welsh no. by blood, but I'm American. Um, I I couldn't go to Wales and say I'm a citizen of Wales. Sure. I'm Welsh by blood. Uh, same thing with Moses. He was Egyptian through and through. He murdered an Egyptian. He runs to the wilderness, according to the biblical passage, and spends 40 years out there. Marries the daughter of the pagan high priest of Midian. Doesn't marry a Jewish kid. You know, uh, there is no Judaism yet. But he learns all these stories of the Canaanite culture, the Sumerian culture, which he probably learned in Egypt as well. And he takes all this, and then all of a sudden one day, he's an old man already, poof, he's got a spiritual experience he had an epiphany in a in a bush that he's burning he has this epiphany he sees god and he carries that with him for the rest of his life it converts him he has an epiphany but he was the only one there he was the only one who saw it and he's the only one who wrote about it but you you, you look at all this stuff is god a myth moses either built a new religion based on mythology or based on an ancient culture's morphing their identities and shaping them to his own needs or there was some proto-religion of God that existed before that and, and something I wanted to mention I read an article by David Roll who is an amazing Egyptologist yeah. uh, an author and uh, he wrote an article which is going to appear in the next Intrepid magazine here on, on uh, the Tower of Babel and he mentioned Moses and his encounter with God. And remember when Moses said, 
whom shall I say sent me? And God said, I am sent you. You tell them I am that I am. I'm that I am. He's pointing back. To, I'm that, that I am they speak of. And what David Roll was finding as linguistically, the I am there, the second I am, the antecedent, is a word that, and I don't have all the linguistics in my head here on this, but I remember reading it. It's, it, it relates to the same two words that stood for the name Anki in the ancient Sumerian culture. So in essence, God is saying to Moses, you know who I am? I am that Enki they speak of. I'm the God who is who they call Enki. In other words, I, I this is who I am. I'm the God. I am the God of all of this. They call them Enki, but this is who I am. I am that I am. I am that Enki. And uh, that to me was a revelation, linguistically speaking. And uh, uh, that there is connection in all of this. And I in the book I write about Muhammad when Muhammad was trying to unify the, the Arabic tribes. Um, he had a mentor who was Jewish and a mentor who was Christian, and they were both monotheistic. They told him, if you want any hope of unifying the tribes, you can't abide by this monotheistic system that exists in Mecca. Mecca was had 360 different gods of the Arabic peoples. And so they said, to unify your people nationalistically, you've got to banner them under a monotheistic god. And so, what did Muhammad do? He went and he dispensed with 359 of the gods at Mecca, and he took the god uh, Hadal and, re- and, and elevated him to the one and only god and renamed him Allah. And he said, this is our monotheistic god, and we will now unify. And he unifies his people this way. I think that's what Moses did. I think Moses took the monotheism of Egypt. And these people, by the way, that he led out, they weren't like this churched enclave, this synagogue enclave of Hebrews living in slavery in, in Egypt for 400 years. They were an integrated people. Uh, I don't think they were as much slaves as they were integrated worker class. And Moses said, you are enslaved to the ways of Egypt. You need to come back to your homeland. And he pulls them out of it and he resists Pharaoh who resists it. And he gets those people out of there. And what does he do? He builds a monotheistic religion for them. And Jehovah God uh, becomes the God, Elohim. And so uh, this is, when you ask me, is it myth? I don't know anymore. I've gotten to that place where I said, God, I, you need to throw me a bone. Because if you want me as one of your own and as a believer, there is sure a whole lot here that works against believing in you, other than yeah. just think faith. I can believe anything I want by faith. I can believe this this uh, little pink bottle of pirate bubble blow on my desk for my kids blow bubbles with. I could say, this is my God! And I could raise it on high and say, everyone bow your, your knees at the thundering voice of the pirate bubble blow! And this is my God. I could make that my God if I believed it and had faith in it. And there could be, I, I guarantee you, if I preached it long enough, hard enough, and had the acts and deeds to follow it myself as a leader... I could convince people to follow me. This is a, and I could set up a theology. I think, and I make fun of it a little bit there, but obviously, but uh, yeah, I'll be. Uh oh, you know, what do I do when uh, when the my desk starts thundering at the uh, base of the uh, pirate bubble bottle? But uh, um, I think this is what Moses did. I think I think religion is built. It's like what we saw with the the Christians when they came into um, pagan. 
Gallic pagan Gallic lands like France and into the British Isles. And what do they do? They subdued the, the pagan religions there. They burned down the Druid groves, the oak groves, and the places of high worship. And what did they do there on those spots? They built cathedrals. They took over the pagan holidays to integrate the people into their belief system. And, uh, and so many other things. Scotty, yes. I wanted to ask you uh, kind of, you know, one of the things is in the later part of your book, you talk about the... Uh, the Merovingians, the uh, French kings, and yes. kind of the uh, the uh, descent that they have from uh, supposedly from that whole like serpent seed theory, and yeah. also too, you know, you go into the real society, talk about uh, the Nazis and how they're linked to it too. Uh, yes, yes, I believe they are, and the the way I see the Nazi the Nazi movement being linked, it's it's a shoestring, but it's linked. Um. And they are, what they did was this, is that the Merovingian kings claimed that they were the bloodline of Christ, that they were the believers. It was that first uh, Da Vinci Code type of thinking, you know, that they were saying that Christ lived beyond the crucifixion, that he married, he had children, and that his children, and there were descendants of his children. And these Frankish kings are the ones that said, the Merovingians are the ones that said, we are of that bloodline. We have the line, the we have the blood of God flowing through our veins, is the way they would put it. I think this was for not so much subjugation as for control of the masses. You know, if the masses and the, the average person who didn't know any better said, hey, our king is of the bloodline of Jesus Christ. Uh, this, did they actually say that, Scotty? They, they did say that. They said that they were of the blood of Christ. And uh, this was Merovic who, who laid this down, the founder of the Merovingian dynasty. Uh, but he had another part of the story. He said, not only are we of the royal line of Christ, but my mother, after being impregnated by my father, who was of this line of Christ, went swimming in the sea, and the great Leviathan, the great uh, beast that represents Satan and Lucifer, rose up and raped her. And therefore, I also had, and this shows you their, maybe their knowledge of biology, uh, therefore, because she was raped after she was already pregnant by my father in the blood of Christ, uh, I now have the blood of the Luciferian flowing through me as well. And this is where they mingled these things. And and uh, and this is also where the theories that, let's say, perhaps Jesus and Lucifer were brother gods, brother Elohim, brother sons of God. Uh, some say that they were even one and the same. They started looking at, like, Lucifer, known as the star of the morning, and Jesus called the Rose of Sharon the bright and morning star. And there's all of these theories out, these theorizings out there, um, which, you know, could lapse into occultism if you're not careful. But all of this in this Merovingian line, the Grail bloodline, which is which was perpetuated through them, the at least the stories of, the mythology of, this was eventually, centuries later, as it passes down through time, this, this was picked up by the, the theosophists. Uh, not so much focusing on the line of Christ, but on they morphed this all into the, the, the Atlanteans and the Lemurians, the, the, the pre-race before humans, uh, before this age. Think of, uh, in a way, kind of think of J.R.R. Tolkien and the Third Age of Man and all of this. This is where this comes into play. And Hitler, uh, well, well, first of all, there were some 
German revivalists in the late 1800s that latched onto these theosophistic ideas and uh, also the bloodline of, the, of, Satan, of Satan, the Luciferian bloodlines, the serpent bloodlines, and they formulated the, the, uh, uh, some German revivalist organizations, which later became known as the Thule Society in, in uh, 1919. And in 1919, Hitler became a member of the Thule Society. And Hitler eventually reformulated the Thule Society to be the National Socialist Workers' Party, uh, which is the Nazi Party. And they were firm believers that they were empowered by the ghosts and the spirits of the Lemurians and the Atlanteans and the Serpentine, and uh, that this bloodline of Lucifer was not Satan worship. They believed that the bloodline of the Serpentine was something holy and something good, and uh, that the forbidden knowledge delivered was the knowledge of freedom, the knowledge... Of, and, and Aryan meant something completely different back then, but they, they adulterated that to mean the pure human race. And uh, this is where all of this had its basis in the Nazi party, in this type of philosophy. And your, your people like Madame Blavatsky, who was one of the founding theosophists in the, in the mid to late 1800s, was not a Nazi. She was not an Aryan in the sense of a Nazi party. That She did not believe these, these teachings were latched onto and morphed in and mixed in with the reptile theory or the serpentine theory and the master race theory, and this is where this all came from. Scotty, uh, I know you got to go here pretty soon, but I wanted to talk about a chance that you had earlier this year to go to Egypt. Yes. And I believe that you spent that with uh, an archaeologist named Dr. John Ward. Yes. And I kind of just wanted, you know, to get your thoughts and, you know, like, your, your impressions of going there and how all that went. Sure. Um... Well, uh, John and I are, uh, I've been working on this, this uh, third book for New Page Books uh, entitled The Exodus Reality. And uh, uh, it's really dovetailing off of uh, uh, things that I studied 30 years ago when I was in seminary. I was a kid, and I was writing papers in seminary about Moses and, and dating Moses and when he would have lived, who were the people around him. And... Uh, um, Moses has been kind of a, an ongoing thing for me, i got to tell you. I, I was in eighth grade, and I did a Magic Marker comic strip of Moses, and it was uh, seen by the church. And I got a scholarship to go to the high school there um, and off of that. And then I wrote papers on it in seminary, and uh, I've always studied Moses in one way or another. And, and uh, now I had the opportunity to bring him. I brought him up in the Nephilim book. Um, and really did a, a study in Chapter 5 of the book on the Nephilim about Moses and my theory of who he was. And the reason I did that was to establish what Moses would have brought to the table, as we talked about tonight, uh, when he wrote about the, 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 the Nephilim. And so this book now is a book about Moses and the Exodus. It's exploring who was the historical Moses, who were the people around him. And Dr. John Ward a dear friend of mine. He's a British archaeologist living in Luxor, Egypt. And uh, he's been there for uh, a little over 10 years, uh, living there full-time. And uh, uh, he and his, uh, his partner, Dr. Maria Nilsson, uh, they have the quarries of Gebel El Silsila. They do epigraphic survey work there uh, on a governmental uh, permits for their archaeological work. And uh, so I had talked to him about Moses when I... That's actually how I met him a couple of years ago. 
I said, I'm writing this book on the Nephilim, and I need to know, you're an archaeologist. I met him on Facebook, of all places. I said, what's your take on Moses? And we got to talking. And we became dear friends. We joked around for a long time about writing a book together. John and I would meet every morning. For me, 6 in the morning for him, which was usually about uh, 1 to 2 in the afternoon, Luxor time. We'd get on Skype, video chats. We'd smoke cigarettes and drink coffee and chat all the time. And muse about uh, writing this book and so after I was done with uh, Reptilians uh, I invited John to come and speak at the Paradigm Symposium last year and when he was here my publisher was here New Page Books, uh, Michael Pye and I, I introduced him to Michael and said here's this book we're talking about on Moses John talked to him and so we got the green light to go ahead and I said John I, I have to come over there and uh, my wife graciously allowed me to dismiss myself from from her and my my three children for nearly a month, uh, January to mid-February, and I went over to Egypt, and John and I, uh, he lives in Luxor, literally his house is ten minutes from places like uh, Menadad Habu, the Ramesseum, the Valley of the Kings, uh, uh, Hatshepsut's Temple, uh, we walk ten minutes to the downtown waterfront and take the ferry across, and we're right in front of the, the, the Luxor Temple, Karnak Temple, three miles from there. And, uh, and my children scream in the background uh, as if to uh, <laughs> give me background, incidental music of children screaming. Uh, but uh, uh, and, and the Hebrews wailed as they built these monolithic structures for the Egyptians. No, that's not what happened. We'll just say uh, it's an EVP or something. It's an EVP. It's a great A. Um, but uh, um, this is, so I went to, to Egypt, and we spent time going to sites related to what we're writing about. And because of John's reputation there and the people he knows in the government there in antiquities, we were able to see things that, that a lot of people don't get to go see. And his connections with other archaeologists there and the society of archaeologists that are there. Uh, we got into tombs that people don't get to see and places people don't get to see. Uh, we actually uh, drove over to the Sinai. I believe this, that if the Hebrews uh, were led in mass exodus out of Egypt, uh, they were up in the Memphis area, which is east of Cairo. And it's the Delta region. And uh, um, they, they uh, boy, I can see my, my other kids are doing a great job of watching the little one up there. Uh, just got to add that. Parents, you know, you get it. Uh, but uh, uh, they would have gone across, straight across what is now the Suez Canal area. This would have been the Lake District, the, the Sea of Reeds area is, I think, where they crossed the Red Sea. And I'm not saying the miraculous doesn't exist and that the divine doesn't exist. It could have been just like the miracles we hear about in church. It might have been God parted the waters. We don't know. We weren't there. But in, in lieu of having the evidence of that or knowing that it actually happened, we can say that, the, uh, um, that we know they crossed in the northern part. This is where they would have lived, up in, the, up in the region of Memphis, the land of Goshen, it was called in the Bible, where the Hebrews dwelt, and they made mud bricks, and Memphis was the center of mud brick making. And uh, so they would have gone straight east across what is now the Suez Canal area. Uh, there's a place there that's 3,000 years old called the Well of Moses. It's been named that for 3,000 plus years, um, where there's freshwater well. They crossed around the northern tip of the Red Sea, and they went down the east side of the Red Sea and crossed over into the Sinai wilderness to a little mountain. Uh, the Bible says it's Mount Sinai. 
the traditional Mount Sinai lives way over on the opposite side of the Sinai Peninsula. We believe it was a little mountain called Serebet al-Khadim, which uh, is about 25 to 30 miles east of the Red Sea and about a third of the way down from the northern tip of the Red Sea. And they crossed over, they went up to this mountain, and at the top of this mountain sits uh, the Temple of Hathor. And uh, John and I drove over, we, we were the guests of Sheikh Barakat of uh, this region in the Sinai. Uh, he put us up in one of his Bedouin tents. We slept on the desert floor in this Bedouin tent. Uh, and he and his family all came down with platters of food and fed us that night. And the next morning we climbed up to the top of the mountain. We climbed the mountain of El Khadim. And at the top of Sarabad El Khadim, this temple of Hathor. Hathor was the cow or the calf goddess of, of Egypt. And remember, I, if you remember your biblical story, it says Moses went up there for 40 days to commune with God and to get the Ten Commandments. And uh, the people, what did they do down below? It says they cast a golden calf out of, and, and started worshiping the golden calf saying, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt, which tells you one thing. These Hebrews were not Judaic in their belief at all. They were an integrated people who were thoroughly Egyptianized because what's their first thing after seeing all these mighty deeds of God that the Bible records, even if they saw the parting of the Red Sea, if they saw this mighty deliverance, what's the first thing they do a week later? We know we'll build a golden calf to be our God. And who was the golden calf? It was Hathor whose temple was at the top of Serbet al-Khadim. So we went up there to these ruins that have been up there for 3,500 to 4,000 years. And uh, uh, some amazing stuff up there, very quiet, remote. Think of being out in the middle of the wilderness of wildernesses. Uh, you're out in the middle. I, I was once in the top of the Rocky Mountains, looking down at a river, snaking down in the bottom, and it was so quiet up there. It was almost frightening. This is what it was like up there. It was so quiet. There was barely any wind. It was remote. It was desolate. And there's these old ruins up there on the top. And this is where we are. And John and I both had a very real sense that we're standing where Moses went. At the time, there would have been priests living there. And we believe he went to visit the priests there. So this is the kind of stuff we did over there. We went and we saw these places. And we, we looked for the people. I believe... I'll give you a, a quick... Uh, if you look at chapter 5 of, of the rise and fall of the Nephilim, you'll see the rudiments of my theory. John has a different theory of who Moses was and who the pharaohs were. Yeah. But our, our theories only separate by 80 years, two generations in the same royal family. Um, there is the difference between our views. But we both believe the mountain. We both believe the path. We both believe the things about the Hebrews and about Moses being thoroughly Egyptian and so on. All of these things are, are things that we share, even though we we place the characters in different different period about eighty years apart. I believe that Moses was a man named Senenmut, who, and I was more convinced of this having been there. Uh, I believe the 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 queen Hatshepsut, when she was a little girl, was the, the the woman who found Moses on the banks of the Nile. And I believe Moses Mar knew of the stories of Osiris being floated down the, the, the Nile in a basket. And she takes and takes his basket. She doesn't even float him down the Nile. The passage says she sets him in the reeds on the banks of the Nile River, knowing that Pharaoh's daughter is going to come there to bathe. I think it was a well-laid plan by a Hebrew woman to have her son found by Egyptian royalty. And, uh, and playing off the mythologies of Osiris. 
and she she finds him. She's seven to ten years old at the time. Had Shepsit. She sends him back to his mother to be ta- to be weaned and taken care of for four or five years. And uh, then she's old enough to claim him, 10 to 12 years old. She raises him. I believe Sentiment was also her lover. Uh, so I don't think she necessarily made him her son, but she raised him. And uh, Sentiment, there's, there's the only record of his parents say he was born of Egyptian commoners. And uh, he is risen to the level of the royal vizier by Hatshepsut. She bestows on him the title of of uh, the royal architect, and he builds her temple, the Erhel Bahre, there in Luxor, this glorious temple. Um, he, uh, he becomes the tutor to her daughter. She gives him the status of mother's brother, which is I, the mother of Egypt, elevates you to my brother with the gods. She also bestows on him the title of, of hereditary crown prince of Egypt. She's grooming him to be the next pharaoh, but her stepson... She was co-regent with him, and she deposes him in order to take the pharaohship herself. And she becomes the pharaoh of Egypt. And about the time, by the biblical time calendar, that Moses would have turned 40 and murdered the Egyptian and head to Midian, that same year, give or take a year or two, by that calendar, Senenmut completely disappears off the Egyptian scene. Uh, there's no record of his death for all these glorious deeds. He's got three tombs he left unfinished, one the most glorious tomb with one of the most glorious, uh, look it up on Google, look up the astronomical calendar from the tomb ceiling of Senenmut, and you'll see uh, what that looks like, uh, but they were not used, his body was never found, he was never mummified, he was never buried there, there's no record of his death, Hatshepsut dies almost the same time, within a year or two, then you have her stepson, Tutmosis Third, comes to power eradicates her image off of everything her own temple, everything his son, 40 years later in his dotage, he becomes co-regent with his son, Amenhotep II who I believe is the pharaoh of the exodus at 18 years old and he says to his dad we haven't done the whole job we gotta eradicate that bitch's name off of everything and not only was her name eradicated off of everything but so was the name of son and mother Harsh. <laughs> hey, Scotty, I know you got to go soon, so uh, I just wanted to ask you real quick, uh, tell everybody about the Paradigm Symposium that's coming up in October. Absolutely. Sorry, you got me on my pet project right now. It's cool, talk. no problem. Uh, that's what we did in Egypt, by the way. Excellent. Um, uh, the Paradigm Symposium, I, uh, I'm i the publisher of Intrepid Magazine, and we, we uh, put on the Paradigm Symposium last year. And we're doing it again this year, October 17th through the 20th. If you want to see some of the, some of the most phenomenal minds in these fields, last year we had Eric Von Daniken and all the guys from Ancient Aliens, Giorgio Tsoukalos, um, um, George Norrie was there, Philip Coppins, uh, a bunch of authors you would know and recognize. This year, if you go to ParadigmSymposium.com or just go to IntrepidMag.com and click on the Paradigm link, you will get to Paradigm Symposium and you will see... Uh, who we have this year, we have Robert Bavall, Egypt, Egyptologist. You've seen him in all the documentaries. We've got Giorgio Soukalos coming back. Uh, we've got uh, Philip Coppins Ward's going to come, but his wife, uh, Kathleen McGowan, is coming to give the, the keynote address. Uh, we have L.A. Marzuli. We have Dr. Robert Schock. Uh, we have, uh, the list goes on. Just go check out our list. And if you like these kinds of things I've been talking about tonight, this is what we do at the Paradigm Symposium. And, uh, uh, so go over, take a look. Uh, there's three levels of tickets where you can come. It's still over six months away. 
So you got a lot of time to uh, to plan and come on out here and come and see us. And not to mention uh, Micah Hanks, who does an awesome Micah Alex, Hanks. Uh, does an awesome Alex Jones impression. Uh, Micah Hanks is 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 uh, my partner, by the way, in Intrepid yeah. Magazine and in Paradigm Symposium. And uh, he just authored authored a book too, The UFO Singularity, with uh, um, New Page Books as well. Uh, and can I say, him. I want to put in one plug, very pluggish plug. Sure. Uh, right now, we are we are looking to expand Intrepid Mag in Paradigm, and we put up an Indiegogo site. Uh, this is a crowdsource funding site where uh, rather than give away 85% of your company to an angel investor for helping you out financially, you look to the people who support your cause and like you, and, and we put up different levels where you can contribute. If you go to intrepidmag.com, uh, you'll see a little widget over on the right, and you can click on that for our Indiegogo site. If you are so compelled, if the spirit moves you, and you like what you see at Intrepid and at Paradigm, and you'd like to support us, we could sure use your help in reaching a goal and to expand this magazine and our, our efforts here. And our efforts efforts are all to build bridges between different mindsets of things. Excellent. And there you go. There's my plug. Excellent. Absolutely. Uh, Scotty, uh, stay on the line. We're going to be right back on Conspiranormal. And uh, we'll be back. All right. Uh, I'm sufficiently exhausted now. Mm-hmm. So, my brain uh, hurts. Yeah. Erase that. That's, bitch, just, bro. <laughs> that's a lot of information. I think I think I pissed off God. I think I pissed off yeah, God because my head really hurts. <laughs> Chris's fingers are all blue. What do yeah. you do? I might sit that at the. Yeah, you guys were playing with silly putty the whole time. You know. Well, anyway, I think that's it. I think I'm gonna call it a night. My simple brain can't grasp the complexities of the conversation at hand. Next week. We have uh, Adam Ellenboss on talking about his uh, talking about his experiences with ayahuasca. Sweet. So I hope that's one you'll like, Luke. Definitely. I'll, oh, I already know I'll like it. I don't even have to hear it. Yeah, I'm going to read his book. I got his book today, so I'm going to read it and uh, find out uh, all oh, I need to know. I watched not to one, questions. but two ayahuasca documentaries. I'm sure you did. Which are extremely long and hard to pay attention to. Well, anyway, Chris, uh, Luke needs more beer. So I think we're going to call it a night. Shabang. All right. <laughs> Join us next week for Conspiranormal. Lucifer, son of the morning, I'm going to chase you out of earth.
your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.